0: So I'm reading beginning in John chapter 16, really the second part of the verse is what it says. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, I do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This is God's word. All right, this morning we're going to be looking at John chapter 19, 20, and 21, and if I follow my outline closely, we will only have to devote an hour to an hour and a half to each of those chapters. <laughs> so you should be home in plenty of time for Easter 2020. <laughs> Actually, I was reading an article, and I won't, can't even explain why, but it was a psychologist who did a study on people who find themselves lost in the woods. Apparently, we have, there's a psychology of being lost in the woods. What's the best advice that somebody could have if they're lost in the woods? It's the single best advice that will, in most cases, lead to a person being found and in good condition. The single greatest piece of advice a person could receive when being lost in the woods is simply this, sit down. Sit down. You're lost? Stop moving. Sit down. Sit down get out your lunch, take a nap, whatever it is, the single greatest way to ensure that you will leave the woods alive is to sit down and not move. It's great advice, isn't it? Literally no one listens to it. So he did a study on 800 cases of search and rescues. All 800 of those search and rescues, 100% of the search and rescues, the individual was found in a stationary position meaning they were found not walking around, they were found doing nothing, right? That's good, right? That tells us that it works, right? No, it doesn't. Only two of those, 800, were stationary voluntarily. 798 of them wandered about the woods until they became too tired or injured to move around any longer, and then they were found. Of the 800 cases, only two of them took the advice of sit down. One was a 12-year-old boy who had been taught some outdoor training as a boy, and he was given the training. It's called hug-a-tree training. Anybody heard of hug-a-tree training? And it saved his life. He was told as a little boy, if you get lost in the woods, hug a tree. He did, and he was found. Another person was a 98-year-old woman. She'd been lost enough times to realize she was never gonna get out. (laughs) So she sat down, and they found her. Of all the other people, Wandered about in the woods, too tired, too hungry, or injured to walk around anymore, and then they were found. So, what do people do when they get lost in the woods? Here's what you do. And some of the hunters in the room are saying, I never do that. Yes, you do. There's two things, there are three or four things you do. Number one, you wander around randomly. Usually, we do this when we're first lost and we get kind of worried and nervous. We wander around randomly. Most adults, after 10 or 15 minutes of doing this, will calm down and say, Okay, I got to figure this out. Kids though will continue doing this. That's why they have to be trained to hug a tree. The other thing we will do is we will pick a path and follow it. We can follow a ravine, a creek, a trail, whatever, a game trail, whatever it might be. We'll say, hey, that looks like a good path. We'll follow it. We'll get to the end of that path that's going nowhere soon, right? What do we do? We pick another path. We don't go back to where we started, typically. So now what are we doing? We're wandering about in the woods, following random paths, which always lead to a bear's den. The other thing we do is we pick a direction and cro- cut across country. We're gonna, I'm going to go due west, and I will not turn left or right because I know due west is where Central Point is, right? So I'm just going to go due west. But here's what's funny in survival mode. When people do this, they will go due west, and they will stop at nothing. The studies show they have crossed railroad tracks and kept going. Didn't stop at the track to go, to, where do railroad tracks go? To a tr- wherever trains hang out, I don't know. People going directional have crossed highways, crossed the highway back into the woods to keep going. (laughs) One of the people in his study crossed a backyard (laughs) and didn't stop to get help, continued going, because our mind does something different when we're trying to survive. So the advice is this, when you get lost in the woods, stay put. That advice saves almost nobody because most people don't, heed that advice. So what are we talking about this morning? Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection will save you. But here's the problem for many of us. Jesus' death won't save us. Because the message of the cross of Christ and his resurrection is intended to address a particular issue in our heart. And as long as we think we know better what ought to be we will miss the point of what he is trying to communicate to us. Jesus' death can't save us. The first reason is because we reject his sacrifice. Look again at John chapter 19, what happened. Jesus was before Pilate. Jesus had been beaten. He had been flogged. He had been punched. And they had put onto his head, this is the first couple of verses of John 19, they had put onto his head a crown that was made of thorns. And they were mocking him in verse 3. He said, Hail, king of the Jews. This was a joke. They were making fun of him. This was no king to them. He had no power, no influence, no following. They were mocking him, and they struck him. And Pilate said uh, to the Jews who were out watching around, he said this in verse 4. See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, listen. Behold the man, and when the chief priests and the, the people there saw him, look at what they cried out. Crucify him, crucify him. See, Jesus came as their king. Jesus came as their savior. And when they saw him, they said, he can't do anything for us. Years ago, there was a TV show called uh, Doogie Hauser. And the premise of the TV show was there was this young kid, uh, really young, and he was a genius, so he became a doctor. And you can imagine the whole premise of the show Somebody in, a way, somebody in the doctor's office waiting to see the doctor, and, the, and Doogie Howser walks in. And you, go, you can't help me. You're too young. You can't help. You don't look like what a doctor ought to look like. Well, we ought to ask ourselves, especially as you get older, this will indeed happen to you, doesn't it? The doctor, <laughs> doctor walks in. I'm sorry. Kindergarten, get out early? <laughs> Hasn't happened to me yet, thankfully. Okay. That's what I've heard from others. Um, we, they see Jesus, he can't help us. Well, he, he is being mistreated by the Romans. He is no king if he can't even conquer the Romans. He offers no religious help. He, he offers us nothing because he is a victim himself. And so they look at Christ and say, he can't help us. They have rejected him and what he has come to do, to be the king who brings righteousness. So Pilate said to him, we'll take him then. You crucify him if you want him dead. And they said, no, no, no. we can't do that. Pilate took him back into his headquarters. This is verse 9 of John 19. And he said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus wouldn't answer him. Pilate was questioning him, trying to figure out what was going on here. Listen to what Pilate said and Jesus' response. Pilate said to Jesus, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Listen, buddy. In one hand, I could kill you. In the other hand, I could set you free. The one person you need to impress is me. That's what Pilate was saying to Jesus. And listen to Jesus' response. You have authority, certainly. You have no authority, though, over me unless it had been given to you from above. What's Jesus saying? You have authority to do those things because I decided you could have them. You're welcome. You have no authority other than what I have given you. But see, Pilate was condescending to Christ because in his image, this was no king. The Jew, he did not see any power, any influence that he could bring to bear in Pilate's life. The religious leaders were condescending to Jesus because he brought nothing to them religiously or politically. He had no influence or power except among the poor and the sick. And then the soldiers dividing up his clothes at the foot of the cross. This is no king. He doesn't even have the ability to keep his clothes from being taken off his back. They looked at him and did not see what they thought they should see in someone who claims to be a king and claims to be a savior. Pilate would expect somebody more respectable. Somebody that people bow to. Somebody that people are afraid of. The Pharisees expected somebody who was more religious in their scruples and how they behaved in their life. And the people of Israel wanted somebody more powerful. In fact, they wanted somebody powerful enough to throw off the bondage they experienced from Rome. But look at who Jesus is. He is beaten. He is flogged. He is wearing a crown of thorns. And finally, he is nailed to a cross and he is mocked openly. Physician, heal yourself. If you are God, get off the cross. And everyone mocked him. Everyone rejected his sacrifice. Jesus' death can't save us if we reject his sacrifice. See, he came on purpose to die on the cross, humiliated, because his death on the cross was intended to be a substitute for you and me. His death on the cross was intended to bear on himself punishment that you and I deserve since we disobeyed God, since we rejected God, since we rebelled against God. We want a Savior who is a hero. The Savior we need is someone who will pay our debt. And so he dies on the cross humiliated and shamed. He died on the cross and he was all the way dead. Look at what it says at the end of John 19. This is verse 28. After all of this, many hours had gone by, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said this in order to fulfill Scripture. I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Jesus on the cross was not killed. Jesus on the cross gave up his life voluntarily. Jesus on the cross was in complete control of the situation, and he was doing what needed to be done on purpose to die a humiliated death for those who are full of shame and guilt, and to voluntarily give up his life that we could receive forgiveness. He was humiliated, he was shamed, but he is Savior. He was not mostly dead. He was all the way dead. To all those looking by, except perhaps his most close followers, his death was the death of a loser. It was meaningless. Someone who came and had so much potential for no apparent reason is now hanging on a Roman cross. Jesus, though, displays the power of God saying, It is finished to the very end of his life he had his primary objective in mind provide salvation for people who have rejected him by dying on their behalf all the way till the very end he had his objective in mind he never diverged for one moment i will die on the cross for you i will pay the price that you deserve to pay So, let me put it this way to end our first section. told you it would take less than an hour. Jesus' death can't save you if you need saving from something other than your sin. Jesus' death can't save you if you need saving from something other than your sin. I don't know what you've decided your life needs saving from. Too many bills, a bad job, difficult marriage, illness. I don't know what it is. But his death came to save us in a particular way. It came to save us from the fact that we have rejected God himself. And instead of rejecting us, he came and made a way for us to have our punishment paid for. He paid for it on his own. Jesus' death can't save you if you need saving from something other than your rejection of God himself. You need to keep this in mind. Martyrs kind of inspire us. This idea that somebody dies, standing up for a good cause, dying for a noble reason. But we need to understand something about Jesus. Jesus is not a martyr. Jesus is not someone who died for a noble cause. Jesus died as a substitute to provide for us forgiveness. His death was not intended to inspire us. His death was intended to pay for us. Look at chapter 20 of John. John chapter 20. Jesus' death can't save you because we doubt his resurrection. We've all been taught this phrase. It's a common phrase. Actually, it's a pretty helpful phrase for the most part. If it's too good to be true, probably is. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. So. Many of us, I mean, we're Americans. I mean, you you pull most Americans and you say, are you a Christian? Oh, sure, I'm I'm born in America. Of course I'm a Christian. We'll leave that one alone. Moving on. (laughs) We like this idea of God. We like this idea that we ought to be good. We like this idea that, you know, God loves us. In fact, we like this idea that he's a friendly God. That's cool. But you know what? This idea that Jesus raised from the dead, now we're getting into kooky land and the reason we do this that seems a little bit too good but this is what I want to do what I want to do is I want to I'm a little bit nervous about going down that road that Jesus is raised from the dead but I like the idea of Jesus-y stuff so I'm going to manage my expectations of what Jesus ought to do for me Jesus is a good guide for me to follow you know I think Jesus at at the coffee drive up would pay for the guy behind him you know that's kind of how we do that now if you're that guy and I'm behind you that's great I'm down with that, frankly. I just wish I knew before I placed my order. I always order cheap coffee and then they pay for it. I thought, oh, I would have got the expensive one. I don't know why I said that. We're a little bit nervous about believing Jesus is raised from the dead because just Jesus dying a martyr's death, that's manageable. Really good guy, really great teaching, loves the poor, sticks up for the, the low. But Jesus raised from the dead, if that's true, everything's changed. If that's true, he is who he said he is. And we got to be honest. The idea of the resurrection is difficult to get our heads around. We're living 2,000 years later. It was difficult to get their head around the day it happened. Look in John chapter 20. The first day of the week came around. Mary Magdalene went out to the tomb, and we showed up. The stone had been rolled away, which is shocking. This is a massive stone. It shouldn't be rolled away. It had been sealed by a Roman seal. It was guarded by Roman guards. So she ran back and told Peter, and she told John, and she said, the stone's been rolled away. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. I don't know where he is. What did she say? They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where he is. What did she not say? He's raised from the dead, despite the fact that he had repeated it over and over again while he was alive. So she didn't even have a category for, wait, he raised from the dead? So Peter and John go running out to the grave, and they look, and the linens are laying on the place where his body had been laid. And they look in, and they're peeking around, and he's not there. Verse 8 of John chapter 20, the other disciple, that is John, he reached the tomb first, he also went in, and he saw, and he believed. But as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Of course they did. That makes perfect sense. It makes no sense, but whatever. So we discover here: Jesus must rise from the dead. Jesus didn't die on the cross. That wasn't the plan. Wasn't go to go to earth, God in the flesh, die on the cross, and we'll just wing it from there. See what happens. That wasn't the plan. The plan was always resurrection from the dead. In fact, without the resurrection from the dead, the, his death is useless. His resurrection is a necessary component to what he was doing. And these folks didn't even understand it, and they were living with him. They were doubting what has happened. So Mary stood there, and she's crying outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stood, and she looked in the tomb, and a couple of angels showed up, and they were saying, Why are you crying, which is a strange thing to say when somebody had just died? Much less now their body was missing. And the reason they would ask that question is because they were trying to help her see behind the veil that Jesus is raised, and finally... She hears behind her Jesus and doesn't recognize him. Verse 15 of John 20, woman, and that was a friendly term. If you said that today, it'd seem a little rude. It wasn't then. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Now, she she had heard that before. She knew exactly what that sounded like. Rabboni, she said, and Jesus said to her, Don't cling to me, for I haven't yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them these things. So, of course, as soon as they heard from Mary, they all believed, right? A few days later, they're all in a locked room, fetal position under the table. It doesn't say that, I'm assuming that. And Jesus just shows up because he can do that. He's a Boom, he's in the room. And he says, guys, I'm here. Peace be with you. Receive the Holy Spirit. And so, of course, now they've seen Jesus, they believe, right? No. Verse 24 of John chapter 20, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin. He was called the twin probably because he looked a lot like Jesus. He wasn't with them that time, and the disciples had told him, we've seen him. And he said, listen, I'll believe when I touch him. Boom, Jesus is in the room, which is hilarious. Thomas, come here. Peace be with you, meaning it's good. Peace be with you. Put your hands on my hands. Feel these nail marks. On my side, don't just feel it. Stick your hand up in there. Put your hand in there. That's a real wound. And I'm really alive. And listen to Thomas' response. My Lord and my God, he believed. Jesus is raised from the dead. Resurrection Sunday is a day of victory marked by repeated doubt and doubt and doubt. Jesus' death can't save us because we doubt his resurrection. His resurrection is necessary because it changes everything about what God was doing. When Jesus is raised from the dead, the first question we should ask is this, what in the world is God thinking? Because listen, here's the way religion works: we mess up. By we, I mean everybody. Yes, you too. We've got to come up with a way to cancel out the mess up. So we try to do something good. They never match, right? We steal a thousand bucks from a guy, so we throw, so we buy um, Girl Scout cookies from the girl at Walmart. So we stole thousand bucks. We spent five bucks. Is it five bucks? Ten bucks? And we get to eat the cookies. And we say, well, I'm square now. I helped, helped out the Girl Scouts. What? That's how religion works. We do something terrible do some, and then try to do something kind of good to make up for it. What God does is, I got an idea. This going blow your mind. I will come and pay for the, all of the things you've ever done, the most terrible of them to the most not terrible of them, and I will just pay for it. And not only that, I will raise from the dead so that you can be alive in me forever and be forgiven forever. And we say, well, what's the catch? We say, well, you have to believe me. You have to trust that I died for you. You have to trust that you are a dirty, rotten rebel, and you need forgiveness. You have to trust that I rose from the dead. It's not that big a deal. Yeah, but how much money do I have? No, you don't have to give any money. That's a silly question. Well, but certainly I've got to do something to make up what I've done wrong. No, you don't. And nobody during that time period, had a category for this plan. Nobody had a category for, wait, God, you're just going to forgive everything, and then you're just going to raise from the dead and we can live with you forever. We don't have a way. We always were hardwired in our hearts to say, I've got to impress God somehow. I've got to do something to make up for it. The resurrection is God saying the only thing you have to do is trust me. You simply have to believe that you need what Jesus did and that he is risen from the dead. God would really forgive us and give us life. God really has changed everything. How do we relate to God? We trust that he's that good. But something in our head says, you know what? I've got to keep God grumpy. For some reason, we like the idea of grumpy God. If God is grumpy and God is kind of mean... I can kind of have some control over how things ought to go. So I do something bad. Okay, God's going to be grumpy, right? Keep God grumpy. So I've got to do something to make him less grumpy. So I'm going to do something good. And so therefore, God is now obligated because I did something good. I bought Girl Scout cookies. I did something generous. I did something kind. I did something sacrificial. Therefore, God is obligated to bless me. See, that's why we like grumpy God. Because we can, we can try and get him to do what we want. God, I did something good for you. You've got to bless me. You've got to make my business grow. You've got to give me a promotion. You've got to make my kids successful. I mean, you have to. I've, been, I've done something good. And God said, I've got an idea. I'll just bless you anyway. It drives us nuts. We don't like that. Now I know we're in church. You're supposed to say, of course we love that. We're in church. We don't like this at all. We want to earn God's favor, so he's obligated to do what we want. And God says, what I'm going to do is die on the cross for you, raise from the dead for you. Ephesians says he has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You cannot make God any happier with him than he already is, and so you don't have any control over him. He just simply gives you life forever. But we doubt this because it's it's difficult. One other thing about the resurrection. If Jesus is raised from the dead, that means we live forever in Christ. Yes? Yes? If we are in Christ, Jesus is raised from the dead, that means we live forever. That means how important is this life you're living right now? You don't want to say that loud. This is the smallest part of your life you will ever live. This is the smallest, shortest bit of your life you will ever live. If Jesus is raised from the dead, the biggest problem I am facing today, the biggest problem you are facing today is at best temporary, temporary. At worst, it might usher you into the next life. But see, that's a little bit hard because the only thing we've ever known is this life, isn't it? Well, it is for me anyway. You're looking at me, no, no, I've totally got it handled, okay. (laughs) This life is small and in fact this life has trials and difficulties and this life is hard and it's all we know. But the resurrection changed everything. It brings into proper focus what this life is. It's just a few minutes before real life starts. We've said this before. You can have your bucket list here. Do you know why I'm going to take my bucket list? I'm going to take it there. There's a better life coming. And if the resurrection happened, it did, by the way, then I have a better life to look forward to, and so do you in Christ. Jesus' death can't save you if all you need in this life is for this life to be as good as it possibly can be. His resurrection is intended to give us a whole other one. Jesus' death can't save you because we reject his sacrifice when we want to be excuse me, saved from something other than our sin. And Jesus' death can't save us when we doubt his resurrection because what we really want is not eternal life, we just want a really good life today. And Jesus says, "I don't want to give you something so small as a good life today." I want to give you eternal life that's perfect forever. John chapter 21. If Jesus died as a sacrifice, if Jesus has the power to rise from the dead, if Jesus is perfect, then we're left with this question. Would he accept someone like you and I? If Jesus died as a perfect sacrifice, if Jesus is powerful enough to rise from the dead, and if Jesus is perfect... Would he actually accept you and I? Let's look at John chapter 21. So Jesus had revealed himself to the disciples, and he came to them at the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee, which should give us a clue. They've traveled a long way from Jerusalem. Simon Peter had said this. This is verse 3 of John 21. Simon Peter had said this. I'm going fishing. All right, now some of you guys are a little bit worried about putting verses on your cars. And you're like, I don't know, I don't want to put a Bible verse on my car. Put that one. It's a Bible verse. I'm going fishing. I'm just giving tips. I'm just throwing these out here for you guys. Like, okay, yeah, you can be, have a Christian car. Put a verse on my car. I'm going fishing. Everybody else said to him, we'll go with you. That's normal, guys. You ever done that? Or gals, either. I'm going fishing. We'll go. So they went out and got into a boat, and all night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. There he is. The disciples didn't know it was Jesus. That's kind of a a theme on repeat. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Now, it's not in the Bible, but I see it this way. I'm kind of weird. You have any fish? (laughs) He's kind of doing this. Have you been fishing all night? Boy, you guys are really good at fishing. He said, cast it on the other side of the boat. So they threw it on the other side of the boat, and it was so full of fish, they couldn't haul it in. It was so full, they couldn't haul it in. And John, in verse 7, says, it's the Lord. And Peter, once he hears John say it's the Lord, he realizes it's true. He throws himself out of the boat and runs to shore. And Jesus calls out to him, bring the fish in with you. So they dragged the boat in. They dragged the net in to the shore. And when they got onto land, this is what they find. This is unbelievable. Look at what they discover. A charcoal fire with fish on it and bread. Okay, let's back up just a little bit before we get to this fire. What has Peter been doing? Just before Jesus died, he had three different people ask him, while Jesus was on trial, wait, weren't you one of his fellas? were you one of the guys that kind of rolled with him? What did Peter say? First time, Nah, I don't think so. Second time, man, you, you sound like a Galilean. You got kind of that backwoods accent going. Certainly you were with him. And he says, No, wasn't me. Finally, this little girl in a temple court, standing around a fire, interestingly, right? Now, I, I know you. I know you. And Peter calls down curses on himself. This is Peter in the temple with Jesus on trial. May I go to hell if I was with that guy? calling curses down on himself. Just then the rooster crows and one of the gospels even said Jesus looked out the window and saw him and he wept bitterly. He was destroyed. He had rejected his closest friend in the moment of his friend's greatest need. That was the last interaction he had with Christ before his death. So now Peter's coming in from this boat. What is he thinking? Oh, it's on now. I've, I've got I've to take it like a man. Is he going to reject me? Is he going to smite me? Is he going to give me leprosy? Is he going to give me some kind of illness where, where I die? Is he going to uh, kill my family? Is he going to make me suffer? Is, he go, is, he, is the rejection finally complete? What is he going to do? Because there's nothing that could be done worse to Christ in that moment than what Peter did. And look what Jesus did. They got out of land on the land. And there was a fire. There were some fish on it. Jesus said, Bring some of the fish. Because fresh caught fish, there's nothing better. Bring some of those over here. I think we're going to need some more, guys. So Simon Peter went aboard and they hauled the net ashore. There's a whole bunch of fish. Jesus said to them, Come have breakfast. So they all sat down around this fire, picking the fish apart with their hands soaking it up with the bread he had just baked right there. And it's a cool morning. Fire's just crackling. They start joking around a little bit. And they're just eating. And certainly while they're eating, Jesus gives them a long, stern lecture on what it means to be a disciple, right? The Bible says they don't say anything. None of the disciples, in fact, asked him a question. Jesus came. He took the bread. He gave it. And so Jesus is serving them. Here's some more... Hey, Peter, you fished all night, Now I know you weren't working real hard because you weren't catching anything, but you're probably hungry. Have another one of these fish. I mean, those are, aren't they good? And Peter's just stuffing them. Wow, man, it's fantastic. I mean, what is better than a big old meal hot off the coals after you've been working all night? When they had finished breakfast, and not a moment sooner, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? And Peter says this, this is a fantastic answer. Jesus, you know me, meaning this. I know you can look right into my soul. I don't even need to answer you. You know I love you. Jesus asked him three more times, do you love me? Because Jesus was saying, Peter, I love you. And I want you to hear it from your own mouth. I know you love me. Your rejection is not what defined our relationship. What defines our relationship is the fact that I receive you in spite of your rejection." Jesus' death can't save us because often we hide from this kind of mercy. That Jesus would actually receive us in spite of the worst kinds of rejection we have brought to him. Peter has seen the empty tomb. Peter has seen Jesus on trial. Peter has experienced the heartbreak of rejection. What is Jesus' goal? Jesus' goal is to enjoy Peter's company again because he loves Peter. And he wants Peter to be reminded, Peter, I know you love me too. Jesus does not bring a religious answer to Peter's problem. You know what, Peter, you need to do? You just need to bear down and get some discipline in your life and maybe an accountability partner. That's what we need. We need to put some sideboards up so you won't go on this rejection train any longer. No, Peter didn't need a religious answer. He needed God to show him mercy, love, and grace and he needed a good meal, and Jesus gave them to him. Jesus doesn't come to us with a religious answer to our problems. He comes to us with a relational answer to our problems. He says, you have rejected me. I do not reject you. I receive you, not because I'm required to, but because I want to. I'm going to draw a conclusion from this passage that you may or may not appreciate. Here's something that Jesus likes. Good food with good company. There isn't any good company because we all rejected him. So he gives us life anyway and enjoys good company, good food with people he's made into good company. He says, I will have breakfast even with you having rejected me. He comes and sits with us And says, I want to know you relationally and personally. I want to make it so that you and I are close. This may seem too familiar, but Jesus wants to be our friend. Think of it this way. Say you decide to take your spouse to breakfast. You say, you know what, let's go to breakfast. Let's go to your favorite, whatever your favorite restaurant is. Probably you're not ordering fish and biscuits, but maybe that's you. I don't know. So you go to the restaurant, table of two, thank you, you sit down, bring out the coffee, the hot chocolate, whatever you're into. So then you pull out of your back pocket the agenda for the breakfast. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to open by taking orders. Once the food has arrived, we're going to discuss matters that are important to both of you and I, maybe the schedule for the kids this week in school, those sorts of things, After we eat our food, we'll take a little bit of time to talk about personal matters. That'll be your opportunity to share with me what's going on in your heart. I'll share with you what's going on in my heart. We'll close by arguing over how much we spent, how much we ought to tip, and then we'll go get in the car and we'll argue about the fastest way to get home in the car. Okay, let's begin with the meeting. Is anybody looking forward to this breakfast with your spouse? (laughs) Some of you are like, that is amazing. You have... You haven't taken notes all service, and you have written down everything I just said. Okay, wait, point number two on that agenda. What was that? Yeah, you got problems. I can't help you with None of us want that. And I'm not saying we should be haphazard in our relationship with the Lord, but sometimes we are assuming that, gee, we sit down, we go, okay, Lord, I've got, to come up, I've got to pray three points. Okay, I know, I know, okay they told me I am supposed to be thankful for a couple of things. Then I'm supposed to confess the naughty things I did. And then finally I can get to what I'm really here for is I need some stuff. Okay, I've got to read my Bible for 20 minutes. It's totally incomprehensible. Ready to go. I'm just going to read it because I know he won't hear my prayer if I don't read my Bible for a certain amount of time, right? Now, none of us think these things out loud. That would seem weird. But we act this way. I've got to hit A, B, C, and D to get God to like me. And Jesus approaches our relationship. John 21, verse 15, do you love me? Yes. Let's have breakfast. He wants to know us. He wants to be friends with us. One of the problems is we have with receiving Jesus' death is we want Jesus, but we don't want him as a a friend. We don't want to know Christ. We just want God to give us good stuff. And Jesus has come to die on the cross to make a way for us to have a relationship with him. He's risen from the dead so that we can live forever with him, and he's not done it so that we can approach him as some kind of religious to-do list. He has done this that we might know him. That we might have relationship with him. That we might say, I enjoy good food. He enjoys good food. Have a great meal. Thank the Lord for it. Jesus' death can't save you if you don't want Jesus as a friend. Because that's what he came to do. Okay, a couple of questions. We'll close with this. Do you want friendship with God? A couple of questions just for you to think about. And then we're going to close. First question, what do you want God to fix in your life? Say you could have God fix anything. Say he was the genie in the bottle, rubbed the Jesus genie bottle, comes flying out, I'll fix anything in your life. What do you want God to fix in your life? Here's the thing. One thing he came to fix was your heart that's in rebellion against him. He came to make it so someone who had rejected him will accept him and receive forgiveness. If you don't understand what Jesus is up to, what he's up to is making sinners righteous by fixing our broken and rebellious hearts. But what is it that you want God to fix in our life? Before you're going to really know and understand what God is up to, it's to change our hearts and minds and our understanding about what he's up to. I need God to fix my money. I need God to fix my finances, my family, whatever it might be. God came to make rebels' hearts love him the way he did for Peter. Second question, how do you want God to bless your life? You say, if God would bless my life in this way, what would it be? Well, Jesus' death and resurrection said he didn't merely come to bless your life. He came to give you a better one that lasts forever later. The blessing is that we live forever, and the good one is coming. It's not yet. This life will have blessing. He brings joys. He brings happiness. He also brings sorrows and suffering. What is it that I want God to bless in my life? The message of the cross and the message of the open tomb is this. He wants you to have a better life than this one. The best one you could have now will not compare to what's coming. Finally, how do you want to know God in your life? You want to know God as just some kind of religious thing? When I do something bad, I should do something good? You want to know God? Well, I've done a bunch of good stuff, so God should hook me up with some good stuff. Or do you want God to be as close as a friend? When Jesus came to the cross and he walked out of that tomb and he showed up at the Sea of Galilee and made breakfast, he made it quite clear he doesn't merely want to have a religious encounter with you. He wants you to know him, and he wants to know you. He wants, this is going to sound silly, he wants to hang out. He wants to be with you. Last question, we'll close with this. Will you trust Jesus? Will you let his death, his resurrection, and his friendship save you?